0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the third in the series of Legal Glass Ceilings podcasts. My name is David Locke, and today my guest is Dawn Brathwaite, who is a partner in the large commercial law firm of Mills & Reeve, based predominantly in Birmingham. Dawn and I go back about 20 years when I was originally working at Mills and & Reeve, and Dawn had started work there a couple of months before me. She's now one of the key partners in the health litigation team, is taking litigation all the way up to the Court of Appeal and beyond, and is hugely respected in her sector. Dawn, welcome to the Legal Glass Ceilings podcast. Thank you, David. I'd like to start by asking you about your background, because I think you originally qualified in the West Indies, is that right?
1: That's correct, yes. I'm a graduate of the University of the West Indies.
0: If you are an aspiring lawyer... Living in the West Indies, how much choice is there about where to go to university?
1: Well, back in my day, there was very little choice. If you wanted to study law, we all went to Barbados and studied at the Cape Hill campus there for two years. So we did our first year in Jamaica, two years in Barbados.
0: Why did you decide that being a lawyer was something that you wanted to explore as a teenager?
1: I think I've always wanted to be a lawyer. Growing up, you're either encouraged to be a lawyer or a doctor. I'm, I'm from that generation. <laughs> and and medicine really wasn't for me. So it's quite ironic that I'm now a healthcare care lawyer. And I think I, I liked the idea of law and justice and doing something to promote what is right. And so I've always been drawn to a career in law.
0: And when you say you came from that generation where you're either a lawyer or a doctor, is that because your family were all lawyers or doctors, or because this was the aspiration for your parents, their children would be lawyers or doctors.
1: Purely aspirational. There were no lawyers or doctors in my family. It's just that, oh, we think you you can be one of one of the other.
0: Uh, and you made it as one of the other. Indeed. Um, and then after you graduated, did you start your practice in the in the West Indies?
1: Yes, so first we got I got my law degree. And then I attended Hugh Wooding Law School in Trinidad because by then I was married to a Trinidadian. So I did my my law degree, and then I worked for three years in Trinidad before we all came to England, in 1991.
0: When you were working in Trinidad mm-hmm. for your first three years, that's what we would now call a training contract, presumably, was it?
1: No, so we didn't we didn't have an equivalent to the training contract. We had two years at law school. So that's the equivalent of the LPC. And then you went into, you were admitted as an attorney. We had a fused profession. So we were attorneys at law and started our practice, yes, as junior lawyers, junior attorneys.
0: And then what persuaded you, and I think I can say Terry, because um, (laughs) uh, Terry's also a great friend of ours, to take the, in a sense, enormous risk of coming to England
1: Yes, and it was an enormous risk. People thought we were absolutely crazy. If you remember 1991, we were still in a recession. Yep. We had two young girls by then and we, we wanted a change. We wanted um, to spread our wings a bit. I was born in, in England. I didn't have to do any further studies to be admitted to the role here. So it seemed an obvious choice to us. And yes, that's
0: what we did. When you arrived in England with your three years qualification and work history and your admission to the role, what happened then?
1: It was difficult. (laughs) Getting a job was really challenging. You know, you you just apply and you apply and you get lots of, of refusals, a couple of interviews, and the inevitable question, is it the same sort of law? Can you work here?
0: It It was just that general
1: mistrust,
0: yeah. Was it the same sort of law?
1: It was, predominantly.
0: Is the question, is it the same sort of law, dressing up for treating you as a second-class citizen because you're black, because you're from another jurisdiction? It was
1: just another strike, put it that way. You know, the large commercial firms were not going to take a chance. And in the end... I started work with a small high street practice who looked beyond my application. We had a really good interview. They realized actually I had three years solid experience with a very good firm in Trinidad behind me. And they said, okay, we will take a chance on you in effect.
0: Once you got into the setting of an English law firm, this high street firm, how did you react to the way things were done here?
1: It was a case of learning very fast because the first thing is I'd come from a jurisdiction where we we had a fused profession. So having to figure out solicitors and barristers in that division was the first thing that I had to to get accustomed to. But there were some really good people who took me under their wings. There was a a partner in in another firm who I met on my very first day working my very first day being sent to court with the question where is the court (laughs) and and she took me under her wings and I've just been eternally grateful and I have to say in the first couple of years I worked with excellent barristers who were just very giving of their time so you if you work with good barristers you can learn a lot very fast
0: Oh, I know that. When I when I I was a, a pupil, and I I went to went up for came up from London, chambers in Birmingham, was sent off to the Black Country, and I could hardly understand my own client, and I certainly couldn't understand half the witnesses. Um, and just that learning process that we all have to go through was was incredible. But um, well, I'm glad that that members of my profession of the Bar were supportive. Um, how do you think you? worked to, to carve a career for yourself, to carve out a niche and a reputation in those early years?
1: So one of the first things that I did was enroll, and, and I did my master's in law in advanced civil litigation. It's not that I felt I needed to do a master's degree, but I, it was necessary for me to get A degree from an English university on my CV very quickly if I were going to progress up the
0: career path. Wow. So you were working full time, you Mm -hmm. had two young daughters, and you were doing a master's degree all at the same time. Yes. (laughs) Terry must have had lots and lots of family duty because that sounds to me like lots of late nights, lots of early mornings, and lots of weekends.
1: Lots of weekends. Absolutely. Yes. It, it just had to be done. I look back and bits of that time is just a blur, but it, it just had to be done. It's, it's the investment in my career. That's how I saw it.
0: And then once you got your master's, mm-hmm. did you then look to move beyond the high street firm? So my next
1: step was to an, another high street firm, but a larger firm doing more complex work, I was given more responsibility, and I felt that to the outside legal profession, I had stepped up a notch in terms of career progression.
0: We interviewed a wonderful solicitor, somewhat junior to you, who said that she was advised at college that she had two problems that she had to overcome, which was, she was a woman, and in her case, she was from Asian background. Did you feel you had to work harder because you were a woman and because you're from a black ethnic background, not having trained in this country? Did you have to prove yourself better? Yes,
1: absolutely. I really, and I don't know if some of that was a burden that I placed on myself. But, you know, you go to interviews sometimes and you feel that people are judging you before they even hear you.
0: Yeah,
1: and so you're always having to be better than the next person, and I suppose that's part of the reason that drove me to do my second master's. So I did an MBA in in law firm management because I I aspired to to work in a large commercial firm, and I aspired to be a partner someday. And I didn't feel it that I could just turn up and go well this is me and I've been working for X number of years. I feel that as a as black and female, I really had to tick all the boxes qualification
0: wise. You had to go above and beyond yes. what white men had to do to get to the same place.
1: Absolutely.
0: And how do you feel about that now?
1: Well, I could sit here and go life isn't fair or things have moved on, life isn't fair and very little has moved on in that front. It it is getting slightly easier for aspiring lawyers from the the BAME community to get ahead. We are seeing more initiatives being run by law firms and by other organisations, but there is still such a long way to go. I mean, I mentor so many aspiring young lawyers, predominantly those who haven't got lawyers in their family. And, and it's still tough.
0: I must say, having worked with you on many occasions, they couldn't possibly have a better mentor because not only can you tell them about how to succeed, but you have worked your way through the system. Is there still, in your view, class prejudice in our profession as well as racial prejudice or sexual prejudice
1: that's a a difficult one there is still class prejudice i think the first time i experienced it was actually when i did my my llm here and the cohort was was mixed from high street firms from smaller commercial firms and from magic circle firms and it's just the way people the expectations, the way people would defer to those from the the Magic Circle or the larger London firms, as if they had more to say and more to contribute and more general knowledge, you know, they just knew more. And that was quite um, difficult to deal with. Do we see more class now? We're certainly doing more to try and break down the barriers, I think, in terms of entry to the profession. But, but it's still there.
0: If we still live in an age of deference, we're being deferent mm-hmm. to people without evidence that the people we're deferring to are any better than we are, apart from the fact that they've got a posher accent and a different colour skin. Absolutely. Um, it is illogical, isn't it? absolutely how do we combat it as people who've been in the profession for a long time apart from continually saying to the youngsters be yourself you're good enough have confidence
1: i think there is a, a responsibility on those such as such as you and i david to to be more proactive with what we do we we need to take tangible steps we need we need to mentor you know there is so much that can be achieved through proper mentoring schemes. We we need to sponsor. So we need to open the door for others. We need to engage with students at an early age. I think by the time they get to university, that's probably too late. So I'm increasingly thinking we need to engage more at the, the high school level when students are saying, we're thinking about a career in law so we can just help them to think about appropriate A-level subjects and appropriate universities and what it means in terms of the financial investment for their families and what to do when they come out the other end. How soon do they start looking if they want to be solicitors at training contracts or vacation schemes? You know, I I'm always surprised when I speak to students who are looking for training contracts and I say, well, by then it's now too late because most firms are offering their training contracts from their vacation schemes. So it's just continually engaging at every step of of their career. I mean, I'm always surprised when I go out to certain events and young black law students are still surprised that as a black female, I am a partner. You know, they still have that wow moment. And that says to me, there is still a lot to be done.
0: Obviously part of the reason for this podcast is to persuade young people with talent Mm -hmm. that the law is something that's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And so as a very senior successful lawyer, has it given you a career where you've been concerned with justice, with truth, Doing something that's worthwhile, or is it purely to earn money?
1: It has certainly ticked the box. You know, I feel that my, my aim when I was, was so young, thinking about a law as a career, that I wanted to serve, to bring about change, to see things done, set right for, for people, that it ha- I've achieved all that and more. And as a healthcare lawyer, most of the decisions we take have a person, an individual who will benefit from that. You know, our healthcare policies affect the wider population. So I say whatever area of law you, you go into, there is the opportunity to, to achieve, to, to see truth realized, and there's so much more than earning good money. Making money is important. There are bills to be paid, of course. But you want that inner satisfaction at the end of the day.
0: You and I have just done a huge David and Goliath type action. And we had the privilege of acting for David against Goliath. Indeed. indeed. And just like in the Bible stories, David outed, or Lisa so far outed. Can I ask you to share your feelings about how you felt when that really important case came down in what we thought was the right way. Yeah.
1: I remember saying to my, um, my junior solicitor who, who worked with me on the case, I remember saying to him and that's why we are, we are lawyers and that's why I became a lawyer. It's for moments such as this.
0: Looking back on your career, we remember fondly our successes But in some ways we're defined by our failures and we learn most from our failures or i think we do if you're advising people coming in to the law Mm -hmm. they have to bear in mind that in a court case somebody wins and somebody loses Mm -hmm. how do we how do you think you can turn the experience of failure either losing a court case or something else going wrong Mm into a positive for your career for your ability for your learning Mm -hmm. I
1: think the important thing is as you said there are going to be cases that you will lose or as my mother would say there are always going to be bumps in the road that you're going to have to encounter and it's how you deal with it so you've got to take your moment I've had my moments where I've just gone and felt very sorry for myself and then you've got to bounce back you've got to bounce back quickly you've got to reassess what happened what could you have done differently what was the learning you've got to face it learn it and never make that mistake again if it's if it's something that's within your powers
0: the other thing that I think looking back on my career which I can't underestimate is the fact that sometimes I just feel I've been lucky I feel you work very hard and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And when it does work, an element of it is just sheer good fortune. Who you happen to meet, who you talk to, which judge you made submissions in front of. Mm -hmm. For people listening to this, starting out on their careers, do we have to accept that, you know, there is an element of good fortune in everything that goes right?
1: Sometimes there is. Sometimes. I always say for for Blacks or members of the, the ethnic minority, we are taught at a, a very young age that you've got to be, that you've got to work twice as hard. You've got to be twice as good to get anywhere in life. So we don't define our successes in terms of luck as much. We, we really think of We've got to be focused. We've really got to work hard. But you are right. There are sometimes when things work in your favor, and you didn't see that coming. So my my example on that would be my job with Mills and Reeve. And you know they said, well, the plan was we were going to grow our, our health practice. So that was a little bit of, or a lot of, being in the right place at the right time, and things working out. And we've now grown this, you know, absolutely a- amazing health practice and David you were our first head of health and and was instrumental in that growth. Now had I walked away I would have walked away from from a real opportunity but it still took a lot of hard work to get that health practice going.
0: Sure we saw the opportunity, we knew we didn't know enough, we worked very hard to learn, we went out and got the clients, we were innovative and it was great. But it was also a time when there was more money in the health service than than in later years. Mm-hmm. To that extent, we were fortunate.
1: Yes, yes, I'd agree with that.
0: If if
1: if I have to ask you, what what do you think
0: is the single best piece of advice you've ever been given?
1: Apart from my apart from my mother, going there'll be bumps on the road it's just it's yes it's just keep going you know life is never going to be smooth all the time so it's not legal advice it's life advice that I've applied in just every sphere of of my own journey
0: is there something structural which you are trying to change which you think should change so as to increase the the chance that youngsters with talent and potential but no legal background can make it in the same way that you and I have made it into the profession.
1: Yes, and I think I am am very fortunate that at Mills and Reeve, we are addressing this problem head on. And we've really worked hard over the last year to amend our, change our recruitment processes, how we select our, our trainees, so we are, and we're doing things like piloting CVs without, so blind CVs, blind yeah. application forms. So we remove the university so we can focus on the content and not be distracted by the university or the names. We've just awarded our the first recipient of our BAME Diversity Award. And part of that award allowed her to come in for work experience. And she gets a mentor from the firm. So one of our partners is is mentoring the student who has won that award. And at every stage of our recruitment now, we are trying to ensure that it is fair, it's equitable. So there's a lot said about the pros and cons of unconscious bias training. So we haven't just rolled it out across the firm, but before any major recruitment exercise, and that includes selection for our vacation students, those involved will have unconscious bias training. So there are different things that we are putting in place to ensure, firstly, that as a firm, we appeal to all students, not those from certain universities or certain backgrounds. So we're really trying to broaden our appeal And then once we recruit, we're looking at the steps we can put in place to ensure that we retain our lawyers from either BAME background or just, you know, different socioeconomic backgrounds.
0: Dawn, that's part of the reason that Mills & Reeve is one of the 100 best companies to work for in the UK. And you, as a solicitor I'm working with, are always twice as good and you always work twice as hard, and it's a complete privilege to work with you. But it's also been an enormous privilege to hear your, your journey, your history. So thank you very much for, for sharing your thoughts on this podcast this afternoon. And I'm sure that there'll be lots of people listening who will be filling in the applications for the summer vacations to Mills and Reeve, because they know it's a place that will uh, judge everybody on their, their potential, not on, uh, on their accent. So thank you very much indeed. And thank
1: you for having me, David.